This Dharma talk was recorded live at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. If you enjoy these talks and wish to support the temple and its offerings, please visit austinzencenter.org. Thank you for listening. Good morning. Good morning, everyone online. So, as you've heard already, uh, today is the official opening of what we call the fall ango. Ango is a Japanese word uh, for what we call a practice period. Uh, here at what we often call Austin Zen Center, but our actual temple name is Inconceivable Joy Temple, named after our founder, uh, Shimbo Zenki, Zenke, Mike Chartman. Uh, her name is Inconceivable Joy. So the purpose and the feeling of a practice period is captured by this Japanese word, ango, which literally means peaceful dwelling or peaceful abiding. Abiding is kind of an old fashioned word, but I really like this. I kind of, I'm kind of partial to that word abiding. Um, you can maybe try both on and see which one resonates more with you. You know, originally the ordained monks who followed the Buddha, the historical Buddha, sitting there on our altar, abiding peacefully, I might point out, they wandered on their own. They were solitary practitioners much of the time, sitting wherever they found themselves and asking for food from the communities that they encountered. So they were what the Japanese also call unsui, clouds and water drifting, clouds and water monks. However, during the rainy season, which was in the summer, they came together to shelter from the weather and to practice together so they came together seasonally. And it is said that in the Buddhist time, they built little hermitages, little shelters to live in, and they studied and practiced as a group during this time. And later, over time, and Buddhism has been practiced now for 2,500 years and has made its way through many cultures and long distances. Later, when monastic communities with permanent housing and other structures like a zendo and a study hall and a buddha hall right many many structures uh, were created monks arrived at these places to do the retreat right? so in japan in our tradition of soto zen ango was considered completely fundamental to deepening your understanding to maturing as a practitioner and that means as a true human being. Dogen wrote a whole, Dogen, who's our a medieval Japanese founder from the 13th century of our era, he wrote an entire essay about practice period, which he called Ango. <laughs> and this is what he says. He says, in India, China, and Japan. So those are the three countries, right? India is where the Buddha, India, and well, we call it India. So includes parts of Nepal, but anyway, India, China, and Japan are the three countries, territories, cultures that Buddha, Buddhism traveled through initially. In those three places, all descendants of Buddha ancestors have participated in the practice period, but deluded people outside the way have never engaged in it. This is vintage Dogen kind of dissing people, <laughs> but, but the, the uh, you know, the purpose of such words is to encourage people actually 
don't you want to be part of this? Don't you want to be part of the great matter of Buddha ancestors? He says, because it is the original heart of the single great matter of Buddha ancestors, this teaching of practice period is the content of what is expounded from the morning of the Buddha's attaining the way until the evening of Parinirvana. So attaining the way means Buddha's enlightenment and Parinirvana means his passing out of this life, what we would call his death, right? The Buddha's entire lifetime of teaching is encompassed in the practice of, the teaching of what we call practice period. And Dogen concludes, practice period is not only a causal factor. In other words, it doesn't lead to something. It doesn't lead to enlightenment. He says, practice period is itself practice realization. One word. Practice is realization. Practice is enlightenment. Practice is waking up. And he says, it is itself also the fruit of practice. So there's this kind of reciprocal relationship at the same time that they are one and the same thing. So I'm quoting you all this because I know some of you will not be participating formally in practice period or maybe what you might consider fully participating, doing all of the things on the schedule that we just talked about and I'll have more to say about in a minute. This is a fortunate time in the year. We only do this once a year. We have about eight weeks now of this more intensified uh, schedule. Um, I'll again say something more about in a minute. And you should be thinking of yourselves extremely lucky that we don't practice during summer here in Texas. <laughs> We're doing this in the more comfortable autumn. And we conclude just before the winter solstice, you know, following kind of the rhythm of the seasons as the, as the year turns, we'll conclude the practice period with the auspicious celebration of Buddha's enlightenment on December 8th. That's the traditional time. Close to the solstice, not quite, but it's pretty dark by then. <laughs> so I want to encourage everybody to see, even if you're new, if you can extend your practice a little bit or a lot to find your edge, as we say, right? Anything you can do to kind of join the spirit of joining the ancestors in this practice. And in this way, our practice manifests the enlightenment that is already there. And we join the ancestors of all three times, past and present and future. So a little bit more about this practice period. In our place and time here in the West, not always, but very often, practice periods have a theme. And honestly, it's kind of a hook, right? It's like, don't you want to hear more about this? Right. So we often give them a theme. And this year, I decided on this phrase of Suzuki Roshi's, things as it is. So Suzuki Roshi, for those of you who are not familiar, is the Japanese monk who founded the San Francisco Zen Center and from whom we are descended, we are related. Uh, he, he came in the late 1950s and died in 1971. And in the 12 years that he was practicing with Americans, he established the San Francisco Zen Center and Tassajara Monastery in the Ventana Wilderness. So this phrase, things as it is, 
is how he expressed the truth of the unity of all phenomena, the, the many, many things that we encounter all the time, the unity of these seemingly separate and individual things with absolute reality. Or perhaps we could say the truth of all things expresses the unity of reality if we see it with the Buddha's vision. And we are studying the teachings of an early Chinese ancestor as part of this practice period. This ancestor uh, whom we chant as Sekito Kisen, that's the Japanese pronunciation of his name. And I'm gonna butcher his Chinese name. He is known as Shitu Jishan in Chinese. Sekito Kisen is what we say when we chant his name in our lineage. And he wrote this poem that we just chanted, The Unity of Difference and Equality, which explores and expresses this relationship of the myriad things, the 10,000 things, right, the, the, the impossibly large number of things, and reality. And we are also chanting, and we'll, next week, next Saturday, we'll chant this other poem. We're chanting, and I'll be referring to another of his poems, which is the Song of the Grassroof Hut or the Grassroof Hermitage, as it's sometimes translated. And this is a, a poem he wrote soon after establishing his uh, monastery or joining his monastery in China. Um, he was a great uh, Zazen master who spent a lot of time in his little hermitage meditating. And he wrote a very eloquent poem about this. So this class, which, in which we're discussing uh, Sekido Kisen's teachings and related teachings, it began Thursday, a couple of days ago, but it's not too late to sign up. <laughs> you can talk to me. And it's also possible until the end of this coming week to sign up for the practice period itself. Okay. And the practice period sign up is a way of supporting the temple. There's a, there's a fee involved, which just goes straight to paying the bills here keeping things going. And if it's a hardship for anyone, we have what we call scholarships available. Just ask and we can waive the fee if it's difficult for you. But what this gets you also is an invitation to attend three meetings, which we call Sangha gatherings. And the first one will be next Saturday. So next uh, Saturday after uh, Brandon gives his talk, we will have a meeting of just the people who are registered for the practice period. And this means who have made a commitment to extend their practice, who've made this commitment to themselves and to each other. And we have these gatherings where we share our practice in trust and honesty and confidentiality. And one of the features will be individuals will be offering short 20 minute talks about what brought them to practice. And there are three people I've invited to kind of make sure we have at least one talk per, 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 uh, per meeting. But if you're in the practice period and you'd like to give a talk, let me know, or I'll come looking for people. Right. We, have t we have space for six other talks, three each meeting. So the first meeting is next Saturday, and then one on the 4th of November and one on the 18th of November. So I still encourage you to, to consider joining us. Um, and that will be about an hour meeting after tea and cookies from noon to one. So you still have most of Saturday afternoon to do other things. 
So finally, after this talk, as we said, we'll have a short ceremony to mark the beginning of these eight weeks of intensive practice. And in addition to the Sangha gatherings, we will have one retreat a month. So we start tomorrow with a one day sitting. We'll have a weekend long sitting in November. And then we'll end with a seven day retreat called Rohatsu, which is the most uh, intense retreat of the year, leading directly to Buddha's enlightenment ceremony. There'll also be more ceremonies than usual. And then the classes, as you heard. And so what we're doing is trying to kind of create a vessel in which we can all cook, right? According to our needs and possibilities and desires. And again, I invite anybody who wants to participate in this ceremony uh, to do that. I also want to say a couple of words about this theme that I chose. And I, I picked it a while ago. Um, it seemed like a good theme at this time in general, you know, the teachings of Zen about how our experience of and belief in difference and our judgments, our preferences can all be transformed by our confidence in and our experience of our big minds or Buddha nature. Big mind is a, an expression of Suzuki Roshi's for what is sometimes called Buddha nature, right? The big mind that includes everything. This is the mind that, as Suzuki Roshi himself says, if we can realize it, if we realize this great mind that includes everything and to practice accordingly, that is enlightenment. So to realize this all-inclusive consciousness and to live our lives out of that place. And so we are studying this poem that we just chanted, The Harmony of Difference and Equality. Uh, there's another title which I, I kind of learned a long time ago, and I'm a little partial to the harmony of difference and equality, which I think kind of speaks to me a little bit more strongly. And at the time I chose this, I was thinking of our divided country, the one we're living in, and the extremes that we're caught in, that we and everyone around us seems to be caught in. And I was also thinking of the suffering caused by climate collapse and its causes and conditions. And little did I know <clears throat> that this year would be so filled mm. with natural disasters. Right? It's kind of, we have to kind of remember because they come and they come and they come and, and we can't hold them all, right? Terrible floods, terribly intense storms occurring at a scale and in places never before experienced, right? Vermont, I have friends in Vermont who were flooded out by the terrible floods this summer. Nothing like this had ever happened before. Earthquakes in many parts of the world, huge and devastating earthquakes that completely destroyed some of the poorest communities in the globe. Afghanistan just this week, in addition to everything else happening, multiple earthquakes leveling entire districts. The continued suffering in war, and Ukraine is mostly on our minds because it's in the news so much, but there are other places as well. And now Gaza and Israel. What is an appropriate response to this, all of this? What is a compassionate response? What helps? 
what serves. And you know, it might seem that sitting here in safety, relative safety, with good Dharma friends is hiding from the world, right? What good does it do to others? That's a reasonable question. Suzuki Roshi reminds us that Buddha's way is the study and teaching of human nature, our nature, everyone's nature. And he says, we treat things as part of ourselves. And things here means not just objects. Inert objects are easy to kind of include. Things includes all beings, all people. The most challenging object of all, another person. We treat, we just treat things as part of ourselves, he says. Within our practice and within big mind, we include everything. And he says, small mind is the mind that is under the limitation of desires or some particular emotional covering or the discrimination of good and bad. So, he says, for the most part, we think we are observing things as it is. This multiplicity of things, it's all one thing. He says, but actually, we are not. And I think we can apply this observation of his to everything, even the things that seem most terrible and impossible to accept. The unbearableness of the unfolding of karma which is what's happening planet-wide, right? This is the unfolding of karma, is something that we can bear witness to with great courage and not turn away. And we can do this by sitting together. And we can find compassion from the wisdom of seeing things as it is, right? Compassion is not an emotion. Suzuki Roshi said, you know, emotions are like this covering of our clarity of mind. Emotion is not actually, sorry, compassion is not actually an emotion, right? It is this complete identification of self and other, where you actually experience everything as yourself. You include everything as yourself. Suzuki Roshi also said, we say to shine one corner of the world, just one corner. He says, if you shine one corner, then people around you will feel better. You will always feel as if you are carrying carrying an umbrella to protect people from heat or rain. So this is one way you can extend just your effort, your individual effort, just this life, in a way that benefits everyone. What else can we do? We can take our places here and now and manifest what he calls this shine, this light, and be of benefit to others, saving all beings as we save ourselves. And getting back to practice period, uh, Shahaka Kura says this, which I, I really like. He says, the 90-day summer practice period, that's the traditional 90 days, right? 90 days in the summer, 90-day summer practice period is an ancient koan Right, which is a kind of teaching story that presents itself as something of a riddle, right? as, some, as a conundrum or a paradox. It's an ancient koan given by the Buddha 
in which each monk is studying and practicing using their karmic self in order to study the self that is empty and interconnected with all beings. Right? So we, we do it here, but it's about, with our karmic selves, but it's about realizing this great interconnectedness. And <clears throat> Okamura goes on, another way to understand is that the empty and interconnected self pulls and trains the self-centered karmic self. So if we can study this in ourselves, we can also understand others in a way that is beyond judgment. What do we have to work with except this body and mind, which is the full expression of reality that is each of us and everything, completely interdependent and interpenetrating reality? So I'm not going to talk so long today because I want us to have a chance to maybe share a few thoughts with each other and do our ceremony. But I'm going to say just I'm going to quote just a couple more things. Dogen says about practice period, back to him, to see a practice period is to see Buddha. To realize a practice period is to realize Buddha. To practice a practice period is to practice Buddha. Get the idea? And to hear a practice period is to hear Buddha. Right? So these things are actually seeing Buddha, all the things that we're going to do in the next two months. In other words, an ango, a practice period, is the right time to realize the identity of Buddha, of enlightenment, of Buddha's mind, the big mind, with our effort, our practice, with this body and mind. So we should take it seriously. We have a chance. In 1247, when he was 47 years old and practicing at his remote monastery, Aheji, with his monks, he encouraged his monks, his community, with these words. He said, entering the water without avoiding deep sea dragons is the courage of a fisherman. Traveling the earth without avoiding tigers is the courage of a hunter. Facing the drawn sword before you and seeing death as just like life is the courage of a general. And he asked, what is the courage of patched robed monks? Patched robed monks, patched robed monks. And he paused and then he said, spread out your bedding and sleep. Set out your bowls and eat rice. Exhale through your nostrils. Radiate light from your eyes. Do you know there is something that goes beyond? With vitality, eat lots of rice <laughs> and use the toilet. <laughs> Transcend your personal prediction of future Buddhahood from the Buddha. In other words, live your life completely, burn it up completely, leave no trace. That's the courage of patch road monks, to be completely present with your life. 
you know, he makes this pause. I just want to uh, point to this. I'm going to, I think, give a talk about it later in the practice period. But he, teachers often ask a question, right, in, in these koans and these stories. They ask a question and they wait for an answer. And often there is silence. <laughs> Everybody's paralyzed. No one wants to be the one to make the mistake or say the dumb thing. Right? So people don't say anything. Or they say something and it's like, no, nope, that's not it. <laughs> so that pause after a question, that's very significant in Zen dialogues. Right? And so here Dogen doesn't wait, right? He pauses briefly and then he speaks of the courage of monks who didn't have the courage to say anything, but he says speaks of the courage anyway. Right? We eat our rice with our full life force together and that way we understand completely rice and each other, right? Our relationship with these things. And, you know, we often hear that Zen teaching and understanding is beyond words. And yet, right, we use a lot of words, right? We say, we hear that Zen understanding is outside the sutras. It's outside what's written. And Dogen, highly values, and just to balance that view, Dogen highly values a capacity that he calls dotoku, which means the ability to speak using words or the ability to express something. So when he speak, when he pauses or any Zen teacher in these dialogues pauses, they're asking you to speak your truth, right? Okay. And sometimes in these stories, people don't say anything, they just bow, which is kind of a cop-out. It might be really genuine, but it's like, okay, I don't know what to say, so I'm going to bow. That's a good Zen thing to do, right? But a bow might express the Dharma, and words might express the Dharma. The important thing is expressing. And we can do this by the way we eat our rice. Um, the contemporary Soto priest and scholar, Reverend Tairyu Sunodo, who teaches at Komazawa University, which is a Buddhist university. He says this, and I just found this recently. It's a great expression. He's talking specifically about dotoku, but he says about our presence, right? Which is how we inhabit everything. Whether we're sitting or eating rice or using the toilet. He says, in terms of space, our presence can only be described as what? And I'm glossing here, like, what is this? Or who is this? Or who or what are you? And then he says, in terms of time, it can only be described as thus come. This is an expression in Zen, in Buddhism. Thus come is right here and now right here, here, now. He goes on to say, going further beyond the duality of space and time, it can only be expressed as what has thus come. This is the question we hold as we go about our lives. Who, what, here, now. He says, when we try to express the truth, we need to find the way of expressing the truth in our words. And it may take years to find your own expression, to have it without a trace, completely spontaneous, completely of this moment. 
So it can be based in the simplest of actions fully expressed. So I'm concluding now with another Japanese phrase, Ichigu wo terasu. It's a Japanese phrase that refers to the Lotus Sutra and to Tendai teachings. Remember, Dogen was a Tendai monk before he became a Soda monk. And it's what Suzuki Roshi is referring to when he says, light one corner or shine one corner of the world. It means light up your corner completely, your corner, your space on the meditation cushion, your Oryoki bowls, whatever it is. Suzuki Roshi said to shine one corner. It refers to our presence. What is thus come here, now, you. Our Zendo contains the whole world. It contains Gaza. It contains Afghanistan. And any other place you can think of. You yourself are the whole world. Great vehicle Bodhisattva trusts without doubt, says Sekitero in Song of the Grassroot Five. He says, let go of hundreds of years and relax completely. We have that opportunity. We are so lucky. He says, open your hands and walk innocent. Do not separate from here and now. Let's do it. Yes. Um, if I could, I'd, I'd like to tell a story that um, related to um, what you were saying today about, about how to be in the world and shining, shining a light in the corner. Um, I'm visiting from Boston, um, staying with some friends. Um, I've been taking the bus around town a lot. Um, really love the bus. There's just all sorts of people taking the bus. Um, the other, the other day when I was coming up this way, um, there was, there was a person that stepped on. Um, I think they were in a, in a femme body, but, um, it was, it was a little ambiguous. Um, they were maybe in their, mid mid forties um, and, and not into them when they came on the bus and they sat and they had an agitation to them. You know, they were looking out, they had very uh, intense, intense kind of eyes. Um, and and at some point during this bus ride, um, they they looked over and they started talking to me. Um, and I, I couldn't I couldn't hear it at, at first. It was just but I was I was listening and I was just trying to trying to get something out of it. Um, and I was able to kind of pick up enough pieces over the next five or 10 minutes to uh, kind of respond in kind, you know, that they were, um, they had met some, met some people they were trying to get out of some situation. Um, and I, I had an opportunity to like affirm them that like, it's, it's, it's good to care for yourself. It's good to get out of these situations. Um, they were trying to, I think, reach a doctor. Um, and, and again, there was an opportunity to kind of like affirm that like care is important, um, and whatever. Um, it was, it was just a really sweet moment. Um, and they were, they were so thankful when they, when they were stepping off the bus. Um, and I, I just got the impression that, um, this person didn't have a lot of, of people in their life that were really going to provide presence and, and really listen. Um, and I just thought this is such a, such a simple and like effective way to just have have joy in the world, just have have a pleasant, fresh experience. Um, 
And so, yeah, I guess my my message to Sangha is I encourage you to take the bus and to uh, you know listen listen to people when when they when they're speaking. We're all on the bus. <laughs> uh, one definition of or one one way of thinking about compassion is um, its presence, complete presence, and you know we. We, we don't know someone other than uh, the kind of encounter you're talking about. We might tell kind of you know various stories about who they are, what they are to ourselves, and what's going on. But just meeting that person completely and listening deeply is an appropriate response. Yeah. So cultivating the ability to to meet. Everything that everything that comes is the Buddha Dharma, according to Dogen. Every person, every situation, every experience. We've signed out, Shu. Don't think it means anything, but you've been signed out because you are currently signed in on another device. I'm not sure what that's about. Two places at one time. <laughs> nice trick. Yes, Rich, here in the... Um, I just want to thank the... Uh, I don't know your name, but uh, welcome here to Austin. And um, I ride the bus, and I can relate to what you're saying, because when I first started riding the bus, there was this one guy who would get on, and he smelled really bad. He smelled like pee. And, and I was like, I can't stand this guy. I can't stand it. And every time I get on the bus, and there, there he was. He rode the same route that I rode. And... It's taken me a while, but after a while, I'm like, I, I get on the bus. I'm like, hey, hi, how's it going? You know, it's like I'm like I'm getting comfortable, more comfortable with my aversion to this person and their difference with me. You know? And I'm no longer reacting the same way. And it's it's been a really interesting experience to cultivate loving kindness toward this person over time. And I think that that's an element of compassion, too, is that not seeing this person as somehow different from me, even though my first reaction is a strong aversion, then just sort of connecting and feeling compassion and loving kindness. And I, it reminds me of that uh, meditation that we didn't chant today that I love so much about uh, not attaching to fixed views about self and other, and, you know, it's- Preferences, appetites. Yeah. And part and, of it is, uh, Part, I, I want to second what you're saying and, and just note that mm -hmm. part of your practice with this was to bring compassion to yourself, to your own reaction or response, yeah. initial response to something that was unpleasant. Mm -hmm. And so one thing that we do by cultivating this presence of our own presence, our ability to just be still with things as they arise, is to say, yeah, I don't like this, and so what? That's <laughs> just an opinion. My opinion is this yeah. person smells. I mean, yes. they smell, right? They do smell. Right. But no, he never stopped smelling. He yeah. still smells. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't change. My, but my, my response has changed. My reaction has changed. You know? Yeah. So Roshi talks about, um, about this a little bit. In, he talks about our tendencies. Yeah, you know, we have a tendency. This is a kind of a phrase he, he latches onto as a non-native English speaker. He finds things that he really likes and 
in English and uh, or in his version of English, which he uses actually quite skillfully, things as it is. It's not a mistake. He's chosen that phrase. Um, and, you know, one of them is to say, notice your tendencies, right? Notice your kind of habitual tendencies, which are maybe to withdraw, right? To say, I'm not getting on this bus <laughs> or I'm going to sit over here far away. Just like, can you relax your mind around it's contraction. Can you, instead of contracting, can you just relax? Reb Anderson also says, sometimes if somebody is like really afflictive, you might have to take a, take a step back to be a bodhisattva, mm -hmm. right? You know, especially if you feel like you're in danger, you shouldn't just open yourself to anything that could happen because you might find yourself, you know, in a difficult situation. So there's some skill skillfulness involved in this as you practice. But the more you practice with it, the more you can kind of almost immediately discern what is skillful. So letting a person talk, you know, letting a person smell, realizing that they're not gonna hurt you, or that maybe the most skillful thing to do is be friendly. That's another definition of loving kindness is friendliness. You don't have to love them and embrace them and all their stink but you can be friendly, be friendly to them. And maybe sometimes you do embrace them in all their stink. Right, well, the, you know, the loving kindness sutra or meditation says to suffuse love over the entire world. And I think that some of the great spiritual leaders are all saying the same thing of love, I love your neighbor, love these, love the stranger. And the, I think the Buddha said that too. So the, the ekayana, the one vehicle. Mm -hmm leads to nirvana compassion yeah. i think later in the same sutra there's the line um even as a mother watches out for her only child so that's this metaphor for how we're going to take care of things and i heard suzuki roshi commenting i don't think directly on that sutra but on this theme um recently where he, he highlighted the fact that all new mothers have never been mothers before. So let, let our not knowing how to help, don't let that stop you from trying to take care of the moment. Um, and that's been really important for me because I can often get stuck in like, well, I don't know how to, yeah. what, what am I supposed to do? What does this person need? What am I really being compassionate? Is this completely living my life right now? Easy to get wrapped up. And something, <laughs> yeah, yeah, but something was just really freeing and like actually like knowing how to take care of the moment isn't what matters so much as like the the heart that really cares about caring for it skillfully or not sometimes. Yeah, I like this. Uh, I quote this often, so some of you have heard this before, but um, Joan Halifax has this kind of tripartite approach to how to respond. You know, there's there's helping, which we all want to do, right? That's kind of how we think of this. I want to help. How can I help? But helping, there's a kind of separation involved because there's you and there's a person or a situation that you're helping. And then there's this thing that's helping. So it's kind of like not integrated in a certain way. Or it can be a little ego sticky, right? Look at me, I'm helping. <laughs> then there's... Um, Fixing, which is even worse, right? <laughs> it's, it has a similar motivation. I want this to be better, and I think I know what's needed, and I'm going to fix it, right? I'm going to fix you. I'm going to fix this. I'm going to, you know, 
And there, you know, you really think that you have the answer and you know what's needed. And that can be really, that can backfire pretty easily. But then there's serving, which is kind of her way of engaging with the world. What serves, which kind of means take yourself out of the equation, this, this small self, and let the big self manifest. Right? It's just this meeting what's in front of you. And it won't always look the same, what meeting means. Right? So I work with that all the time. Am I helping? Oh, God, am I fixing? Yes, I am fixing. I'm a fixer. I admit it. Mm. I like to fix things, right? So, <laughs> and that for me often means just shutting up and letting other people <laughs> step forward. Mm. Yeah. And then what serves? Uh, I read something in this book that I'm reading called Compassion and Emptiness, which is a Theravada book. Mm-hmm. Um, the Buddha talked about compassion. He didn't mean taking on the suffering of others. And that's pretty important. And I know I've done a lot of that because taking on the suffering of others just makes you suffering and sad and not able to be of any help. So, you know, compassion involves you know, all the things you said, but also um, that with this seeing their suffering, uh, that you have this deep desire to save them. And suffering is enough that they can be saved. Yeah, the sixth ancestor, who is the teacher of uh, Sekido Kisen, says, save all the beings in your mind. Save all the the beings in your mind. That's one to sit with. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, it's another way of expressing some truth about what we're doing. We say, save all beings. We can't, right? How could we do that? And so you can think of it as an impossible, endless vow that bodhisattvas just, you know, lifetime after lifetime, come back, stay with the trouble, right? And there will always be beings to save. But this idea of saving all the beings in your mind, I sometimes practice that with just inviting in the things and the people and the situations that are troubling me. Sit with me, sit right here, let's sit together. So not avoiding, right? Not turning away, not saying, no, you're disturbing my blissful sitting. (laughs) Think about you later. Just like make friends friends with everything, no matter how afflictive, include it. So that's one way. And I think that's not taking on the suffering. It's allowing the suffering to be with you. Another thing that I like a lot is the Metaphor of a bodhisattva is like a water wheel. You know how water wheels work right there? To function and turn the millstones and actually produce something, they sit in a stream. If the stream gets too low, there's not enough to work with, then they don't turn. But if the stream is running too high, they don't turn. So there's this balance. You're in the stream. But if you let yourself get overwhelmed by suffering, then you can't function. You're no good to yourself or anybody else. So... Being present with it, but not becoming paralyzed by it. And this is a balance that we're all looking for and all trying to find all the time. So, you know, one way might be not to read all the news every day obsessively the way I do. (laughs) Or uh, something else. 
know, you need to taking care of things starts with you. Compassion starts with you. I think you had, had a question before or a comment? Yeah, I really like this how question, like how to do it, how to listen to the person on the bus and how to be okay with the stink. Um, it's, there's so many opportunities yeah, yeah. <laughs> you can just keep trying. Yeah, I think I just, yeah, no, it's like I'm such a good investigation of what I'm investigating, how, how to do it, how to be compassionate. Never really, you know, but this is why I just want to echo my enthusiasm for Congo because, uh, for me personally, like this how is also very connected to this what, this what, like what is it that's kind of like practice, like this is where I'm practicing. Um, I think if it's real, it's like kind of start here, where else, you know, where else can it start? And, uh, and not easy, but we have each other and, um, but has thus come. <laughs> wow. Yeah. yeah. I mean, with so many billions of us now on this planet, it may not seem like a blessing to be born a human being with all the trouble that we cause, mm -hmm. especially trouble to each other, trouble to the planet. But the teaching is that it is a rare thing and a fortunate thing to be born a human being. So let's just embrace that, right? Mm -hmm. And say, how, how do I not waste this one precious life? I think some poets said that, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, how do we do that? And not blow this chance. Of course, we get more chances, but that's what, you know, don't waste this life. So many of our, our teachings end that way. Do not, don't waste time. Don't waste this life. Yeah, so compassion and empathy for others as we navigate through this world is a skill I think we're losing because the technology. I'm out in the world, people are buried in the phones, someone could drop dead and they're just staring at the phones. It's, you know, that's an extreme example, but I think that's a problem in today's society. One great thing about practicing in a real space with people who are living and breathing with you is that, you know, there's no escape from presence, but the presence of others, comfortable or not, right? you know, that person who's breathing too hard or stomach is grumbling or <laughs> squirming, you know, right? We have to, we, we don't choose who we practice with, and that is also a gift. It's like, somebody said, it's like rocks in a tumbler. You know, we, we butt up against each other and we smooth off. If we're lucky, we smooth off the rough edges, right? We settle in and we just accept everything. Yeah, we accept what we're given to eat. <laughs> we don't always like it. There's not, not enough salt in this oatmeal, you know. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> it's a great story about uh, the early days of Tassajara, and they had, you know, they would get served hot cereal for breakfast, and it was the macrobiotic, height of the macrobiotic craze. And uh, there was a tray that was passed along that included all these condiments, like maple syrup and sugar and cream and milk and I don't, whatever you wanted to add to your oatmeal. And Suzuki Roshi apparently said, amashio, right? Which is sesame salt, which is the only condiment we generally use, right? It's like, take away all these choices. This is not practice. Our practice is to just incorporate today's breakfast is oatmeal, right? Yay for oatmeal. <laughs> so I think you're right about technology, but 
people have been stepping over the bodies of others in the street for as long as we've had streets. You know, people don't want to look. They don't want to get involved. They're afraid. And we'll just use that as an extreme example of turning away, right? Yeah, so we're not trying to shut things off. We're not trying to get rid of our thoughts. We're not trying to get rid of our suffering. We are trying to be with being human being on a planet full of other human beings. <laughs>